turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. With a look at our Thursday broadcast of Way of Grace, here's Pastor Jesse to stand. We're actually dealing with the dismantling of the old system while Christ is building the new at the same time in the same place. We are actually dealing with an old political, theological system that's falling apart while Christ is affirming and building his New Testament church in the same place. This is the lordship of Christ being manifested to the Old Testament church of which the rulers cannot avoid. Grace Bible Church in Hayward welcomes you to Way of Grace with Pastor Jessica Stan. You know, many Christians today fail to understand exactly who the Holy Spirit is. And that's a real shame because the power that He possesses and wants to use through us is incredible. Our aim in our current series in Acts is to get to know the Holy Spirit and all of the ways that He makes our lives glorifying to God. Here now with today's broadcast of Way of Grace is Pastor Jessica Stand. So we um, left off last week with the title of our study being the message behind the miracle. And of course, we worked through the theology that miracles that were performed in the first century were designed primarily to authenticate the ministry and the uh, calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the miracles that the apostles performed, the miracles that Jesus performed, yea, even the miracles that the Old Testament prophets performed were really not ends in themselves. They were not opportunities by which um, uh, the human race would awe at the power of God or, or be taken in by uh, the fact that God can do miracles, it was always designed to point us to something else. And that would be primarily to God's covenant purpose in Jesus Christ. So when we go through the book of Acts, which is the practice of the church, what you will discover is that there will be patterns that will emerge. And those patterns are to teach us how you and I are to Look for the opportunity to share the gospel when God brings about notable events like that which occurred in Acts chapter 3 with the lame man who was at the gate beautiful, who was ministered to by uh, Peter and, uh, and John, and he was healed and he's in the temple. And everyone is gathering around Peter and John and the lame man because God is going to now bear record to the risen Lord, for which Peter says in verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God the, that glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. 
So Peter uses this occasion under unction of the spirit of God to now preach the gospel, which is uh, which has its its emergence. It has its uh, platform on the basis of this miracle that takes place. And he's doing what he's called to do. Now, verses 13 through 17, as we learned last week, was an indictment, a direct indictment against Israel for having denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 having desired Barabbas, verse 14, and thus, according to Peter's own words, killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Peter affirms the bodily resurrection of Christ, and he says, we were witnesses of his resurrection. We were witnesses of his death. We were witnesses of your perpetual denial of the Messiah for the whole three and a half years that we were with him. We are his witnesses. And of course, now the Jews are strapped with this testimony, which, as we have learned, is part of the laying of the foundation stone of the New Testament church upon which Christ would build his church, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Peter affirms in verse 16, as you and I prepare to deal with other things in verse 16, he says, and his name, that is Jesus through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. You see the word strong there? Um, That's our word steroid. In fact, there's a preposition in front of it, en steros, in sterion, and it means that he was strengthened within and made fully whole in all of his body. He was not just uh, healed of his lameness, but he was made totally whole in every aspect of his body. He was strengthened altogether. And it's a great picture of true believers who prior to our salvation, we are impotent, we are weak, we are powerless, we have no spiritual life. And until God comes along and fuses us with the spirit to not only give us life, but to strengthen us in every aspect of our bodies, we have no ability to bear witness to his glory. The other strategic truth you might think about, too, is that. The Lord Jesus Christ from his throne in glory is picking a fight with the rulers because this miracle took place at the gate beautiful. And when this man was healed, he and John and Peter are now in the temple creating havoc over a notable miracle that God does that opens the door for the gospel to be preached. So I want you to think in terms of the context, the topological uh, emphasis or significance. They are in the temple. The temple is the place where much of Christ's controversy took place when he was there. This miracle is taking place in the temple. So you guys know, according to the framework of our class, that we are dealing with old things and what? New. We're dealing with that old covenant paradigm and the new covenant paradigm. We're actually dealing with the dismantling of the old system while Christ is building the new at the same time in the same place. We are actually dealing with an old political theological system that's falling apart while Christ is affirming and building his New Testament church in the same place. This is the lordship of Christ being manifested to the Old Testament church of which the rulers cannot avoid. This miracle will reverberate all the way throughout the church and create a stir, which will bring us into the fifth chapter, which I'm sorry, the fourth chapter, which will be the first 
controversial battle between the apostles, the leaders of the New Testament church, and the leaders of the Old Testament church. But before we get there, there's something for us to mark. After he says that through faith in this man, which faith was given to him by Christ and has made him perfectly whole, watch this, in the presence of you all. See the latter part? His miracle was a witness of Christ's lordship in the midst of the Jewish people. They are still confronted with Messiah through the church, through the apostles, through those who are objects of grace. And that's the way the gospel works. But then there's some interesting turns of event that take place in the language of Peter, with, which is worth our discussion. He said in verse 17, I think we still have our PowerPoint. If you could pull our PowerPoint up from last week, I think it's in our PowerPoint. Um, Peter recognizes that they are now gripped with and convicted by this testimony. If you can find it, let's see here. Um, Yeah, leave it right there. Point number four. He now begins to address something that is extremely important for your understanding as a child of God. Obviously, for him and John and the others, as they will, and Paul will do this all the way through the book of Acts. It's all in the New Testament as well. You are guilty of killing the Lord. You are guilty of killing the Prince of Glory. You are guilty of killing the Savior. Strong, strong, strong indictment upon a people group of which that it could be unbearable if they have to hear it over and over and over again. The apostle now says something that I think is critically important. Look at verse 17. And he says, and now, brethren, you see that? And now, brethren, I know, that's what the little uh, English word what in the King James means. I know that through ignorance, you did it, as also did your rulers. I know that through ignorance, you did it, as also did your rulers, What is he doing here? He's actually giving insight into something that God does and something that God did to actually prepare them for doing what they did in crucifying Christ. There was a level of ignorance that was part of the providence of God, which would allow the Jewish people to remain antagonistic and hostile towards Christ and his message and his miracles and his witness. And this was imposed upon them by God. There was a level of ignorance. That's our Greek term, agnoios, from which we get the term agnostic. It's just when you don't know. Like a person who says, I am an agnostic. Now, most of the time, they are not truly or technically an agnostic. They are simply incredulous. An agnostic is a person who really, after all the evidence is laid out, cannot make a clear and honest decision. But most folks who call themselves agnostics are simply rebelling against the incontrovertible evidence, which makes them simply uh, rebellious, uh, unbelievers. In this context, however, when it says that they were ignorant, what's taking place is a principle that God laid down in the Old Testament that is critical for us to learn and understand. There are some sins, and this is going to take up the bulk of our time, but hopefully not all of it. There are some sins that men commit that can fall under the category of ignorance. 
which means even though they are committing it, there is an aspect or a category of their consciousness that they are not aware of either the actual sin they are committing or the depths and severity of the crime of the sin they are committing. And this is a critical insight to grasp because this speaks to the witness of the spirit of God in our conscience and in our heart and in providence. Two people can commit the same crime. And one person will be more guilty of that crime committed than the other person. Two people can uh, commit a, a, a very uh, innocuous uh, uh, infraction. Of, of crossing the street uh, without looking and, uh, and, and maybe violate some kind of traffic law. And one of them will be less guilty than the other because one will be more knowledgeable of what he did than the other person. So even though both have committed a trespass, one is more culpable than the other of the trespass because of how much he or she knows. So when Jesus says in the book of Luke, um, to whom much is given, much is required. And the one that knew little will be beaten with few stripes. The one that knew much will be beaten with more stripes. Is speaking to the degree of a person's comprehensibility of what they have done. And in this context, when Peter says, I know that through ignorance you did this. There's no way that Peter could know that without the Holy Spirit. There would be no way that Peter as a human being could know in the complexity of the whole of that rebellious period in the uh, life of our Lord Jesus Christ where the rulers gathered together. They plotted, they planned, they schemed, they sought to condemn him of uh, heresy and blasphemy over and over and over again. You guys remember that. This wasn't, they didn't just rise up one night and say, that's it, that's enough. Well, let's just go take him and kill him. No, they strategically pursued him again and again and again, seeking to hire false witnesses against him. So this was an ongoing effort from the beginning of Christ's ministry where the rulers were trying to discredit him and then also condemn him, of which they ultimately succeeded, which means there was a lot of deliberate, conscientious effort that went into opposing the testimony of Christ. And yet here's Peter saying, I know that you did it in ignorance, you and your rulers. So I want to exercise yourself, your senses on a principle in the Old Testament that we can draw over and make some application with us as well. Going back to our PowerPoint, PowerPoint, uh, the PowerPoint uh, enunciates it is probably in your outline as well. Um, I'm not at my old outline. Let me see here. There it is. You were ignorant, not innocent, but ignorant. You guys got that to be ignorant of a transgression does not make you innocent of that transgression. It just makes you ignorant of it. Okay. And in fact, that statement right there corresponds to virtually every Old Testament infraction wherein there was a sacrifice available for the recovery or restitution of that infraction. Here's the proposal. God nowhere in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, made provision for the recovery of sins that were committed, that were known. 
Like there was no sacrifice to be offered for committing adultery. There was no sacrifice to be offered for committing murder. There was no sacrifice to be offered for committing idolatry. There were no sacrifices. The sacrifices were always for sins of ignorance. The penalty for known conscientious moral sins of the nature of which you and I are speaking was death. That's the nature of the Old Testament law, and it's critical to understand. Now, I'm actually talking to you about the philosophical and the psychological side of it, that what God was teaching the children of Israel in the Old Testament was that he was so holy that he would not put up with us sinning against God in a deliberate, open, and overt fashion, and yet call ourselves the people of God. In other words, the Old Testament system of offering sacrifices for sin was not like we have in our Catholic church where a person can commit adultery, go to the priest, pray prayers, do penance, and be forgiven. This is what allowed, like I've said before, mobsters and and psychopaths and sociopaths to think that they could be forgiven when they knew that immediately after praying and going through penance, they were going to go out and do it again. Such a notion of confession would belie an ignorance of a real relationship between the true and the living God who is spirit and a man or woman who is authentically born again and is made compatible by regeneration to have fellowship with the true and the living God. In other words, 1 John chapter 1 tells us that when we are talking about having fellowship with God, it means that we are walking in the light even as he is in the light. In other words, you cannot be walking in the darkness of a moral bondage that perpetually drives you into states of open rebellion. The next word I'm going to get into is high-handed rebellion. And to think that you actually have a genuine walk with Christ. Did you guys get that? That there is no grounds in the Old Testament, and this is true for the New too, wherein God is uh, accommodating the man or the woman who makes uh, their relationship with God to be something that is merely external and ceremonial on its level. That I, if I just go to church, if I pay my tithes, if I put on Christian lingual, but in my own private life, in the darkness, in the secrecy of my own life, I live in continual uh, rebellion against God. Such a notion would belie that that person does not know God and has not been born again. In the Old Testament, God did not put up with it so that either persons came under the severe judgment of God when they committed adultery or committed uh, idolatry or committed stealing or whatever the case was, ended up being stoned or as was really the case in the Old Testament. The penalties for sin were so severe in the Old Testament that the Old Testament people never actually obeyed the law to execute those who committed moral crimes. Are you guys hearing me? They just did not do it. So what God did was just be patient with their rebellion year after year after year after year. And this is why you see so many frequent events where God breaks out in judgment against the nation. Because 
there is the national sin, a national conscientious uh, collective disobedience to the laws of God, where God waits for a season before the congregation uh, is brought under judgment to see if the congregation will repent openly and acknowledge that they have not raised their kids right, that they have not brought the drunkard son before the law courts, that they haven't dealt with this transgression, whether it's in the high office of the priesthood or the monarchy or the common folk who were peasants on the ground. And so God would finally bring his judgment on Israel because they violated his laws. And they would complain, who can keep these severe laws? Well, the law was severe to drive them to realize how desperately they needed a savior. But what we are dealing with is an aspect of sin in relationship to God that is critical for us to understand and know that with God, there is no darkness. That God does not tolerate you and I having a space in our mind, in our conscience, in our heart, in the secret chambers of our soul where we live in open, hostile rebellion against him and then claim to have fellowship with God. God does not tolerate that. So when Peter said, you were ignorant, what Peter is saying is there's a caveat here over against the severe crime that you as a nation committed in killing Jesus Christ, which has to do with God blinding you. And that's what God had done to the nation, blinded them. You know how when you and I do something and it's wrong and then it's revealed to you that it was wrong and you are shocked and you realize, whoa, I really did a wrong thing. But prior to that revelation, you didn't have that sense of uh, awe and reprehensibility and apprehension of guilt. Now you do. Because the veil is removed and you're aware of how heinous that act was. Well, you were blinded at the time. That's called conscious ignorance. Now, I want you to uh, go with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. And I'm going to work with you through some verses in relationship to this and bring it all the way back to God's merciful act. In fact, in my outline, this is the way I put it. And you can either write this down or, or just, you know, capture it in your thoughts. There is an ignorance that God allows in the life of his elect to keep them from committing the unpardonable sin. There is an ignorance that God allows in the life of his elect to keep them from committing the unpardonable sin. Did you guys grasp that thought? There's an ignorance that God allows, that he permits, that he ordains to drape the mind and the conscience and the thoughts of his elect, especially while they are in an unsafe state. Because remember, to be elect is not equivalent to being a believer. An elect is equivalent to being chosen of God unto salvation. Which means as his elect child, you shall come to faith at some time and affirm your election. Did you get that? Because some folks try to make election and believing synonymous. That's a fallacy. Election is not itself salvation. It's the cause of our salvation. I am saved because God chose me unto salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Second Thessalonians chapter uh, two, verse 15. And so if you say that someone is elect, it is not the same as saying they are a believer. For 
All of us were unbelievers until we became a believer. But we were always elect. You guys got that? We were always elect. The Apostle Paul was always God's elect. Although he lived a very heinous, open, rebellious life against the true and the living God, especially over against the gospel, as we shall see. And so what I said was, in God's providence, while you and I by nature are sinners, and we have the capacity in ourselves to commit the grossest sins against God, even such as what would amount to blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, if God did not put restraints around our actions and limit our capacity of comprehension so that what we do, we do not do with a full scope of knowledge that would make us culpable to an irretrievable damnation. We are out of time today. We'll close our program out here and pick up where we left off next time we're together here on Way of Grace with Pastor Jesse Gastand. Thank you for spending a few minutes with us today. We trust it was profitable in your walk and relationship with Christ. Our goal here at Way of Grace is to make sure that you are growing in Christ, that you are living a life worthy of the calling that has been placed on your life from the gospel. If you have questions, comments, prayer requests, as always, you're welcome to reach out to us here at Way of Grace. Our phone number is real easy. You can reach out to us at 510-886-9782. That's 510-886-9782. You can also reach us at our website, grace-bible.com. And you can email us from that website as well as find out more about us, who we are, what we believe, worship opportunities. In fact, our worship opportunities are really quite simple. Sundays at 1030, we meet here at the church in Hayward. We also have a Friday evening Bible study at 630 and then a Tuesday evening prayer and Bible study at 630 as well. For more information, again, grace-bible.com or call 510 586-9782. Reach out to us by mail if you want to write 22768 Main Street. That's 22768 Main Street, Hayward, California. The zip code is 94541. As always, it's a pleasure spending time with you here in God's Word, growing in His grace. Until next time, may Christ be your way of grace. I care what they might say. We love Jesus anyway. I care what they might say. We love Jesus anyway.